Welcome to the Judgment Call Podcast, a podcast where I bring together some of the most curious minds on the planet. Risk takers, adventurers, travelers, investors, entrepreneurs, and simply mind bogglers. Find all episodes of this show. Simply go to Spotify, iTunes, or YouTube, or go to our website, judgmentcallpodcast.com. If you like this show, please consider leaving a review on iTunes or subscribe to us on YouTube. This episode of the Judgment Call Podcast is sponsored by Mighty Travels Premium. Full disclosure, this is my business. What we do at Mighty Travels Premium is to find the airfare deals that you really want. Thousands of subscribers have saved up to 95% in the airfare. Those include $150 round-trip tickets to Hawaii for many cities in the US, or $600 life-led tickets in business class from the US to Asia, or $100 business class life-led tickets from Africa round-trip all the way to Asia. In case you didn't know, about half the world is open for business again and accepts travelers. Most of those countries are in South America, Africa, and Eastern Europe. To try out Mighty Travels Premium, go to mightytravels.com slash MTP, or if that's too many letters for you, simply go to MTP, the number four, and the letter U.com to sign up for your 30-day free trial. The, the, the difficulty of, of finding the right co-founders and having co-founders in the first place <clears throat> And I think I've been going all over the place. And from my own personal experience, I started out with a big founders team and we were inexperienced and squabbling all the time. And we didn't have a CEO, so it was a mess. It was a hot mess. I felt, although we were all bright individuals, it was very difficult for us to, once we hit certain bumps in the road, to figure out which way we should go. And the, the investors didn't help. The investors actually tried to sow the vision between us because they tried to get as many people as they could on their side. So it was a tough time. Mm. And then I went from this relatively large founder team to smaller and smaller teams. Um, and right now I'm, I'm, I'm running one just by myself um, as the, the sole founder. Uh, I feel in, in my personal progression, um, that is something that, that I enjoy, right? So I, I went from a team where I had very little control to one I have all the control I want. And obviously, I'm missing out on certain inputs, so that's hard for me to measure. Where do you stand on this? So what, what's like your, your, your best um, scenario for bringing founders team together? And I know Spark Labs is really focused on the, on the early stage. Um, it's really focused on accelerator programs, so you likely have much younger founders. That would be my assumption. So yep. where do you stand on that? Well, I, I think the literature and data is out there, which we tend to agree with, like whether it's even practices like Y Combinator or ours, we generally don't accept solo founders. You know, I think even, you know, various studies from MIT and other have shown that the success of a startup exponentially jumps from a solo founder to two, maybe a little benefit for three, but definitely plateaus after like three and four, after four, right? Um, yeah. Four, it gets a little dicey, I think, you know, if there's a large team like that in terms of making decisions, right, and dynamics, right? But ideally, uh, especially I would say for, you know, teams that are in their 20s and 30s, I would personally feel more comfortable if there was at least 
two co-founders. Um, we have taken exceptions with, even within Spark Labs of backing solo founders, right? If it's a unique sort of industry, but definitely also if, uh, you know, the entrepreneur is older and more seasoned, right? That's where I think, you know, we give more leeway into that situation if they're, you know, in their 40s and 50s, right? Because, um, you know, they're, they have the built-in network, they have the experiences, and as long as they're more self-reflective, right, then I think that gives comfort and why we accepted some of the solo founder startups into our programs. But yeah, like I said, generally, I mean, it's dicey, right? Because the, you know, the data is out there where it shows that, you know, startup success increases with co-founders, but also on the flip side, you know, at least what, a third of found up failure is because of co-founder dynamics, right? Yeah. It's because people don't get along, right? And when sort of, you know, crap hits the fan, right? Shit hits the fan, people's worst characters or true, true characters come out, right? I say yeah. startups more so, that even from my own experience, like startups more than, um, startups are same to like, even like playing certain sports. Like I, I always used to say when I was younger, you don't see a person's true character come out until they play on the basketball court, right? Yeah, so or you much. have to take them driving. I think that that would be my first <laughs> test. I would run, I would drive um, with people and they would be in the driver's seat. And that already uh -huh. tells you something about their personality. But I think it's so hard, right? I mean, I think one is the numbers and if I would be a VC, I, I would, would have the same hesitation about single founders because if you ever disagree with that person, there's no backup plan, right? So all the knowledge is gone. You basically have to shut down an early stage startup unless it already has grown into a good amount of, of employees. So I, I totally share that from, a, from an investor's perspective. Uh, do I think personally it's not necessarily so if you don't go for a VC model? But on the other hand, how do you find these people how do you test these co-founders so i've tried like you know i've learned my lesson i've tried all kinds of things i find it incredibly difficult to come up with a with a good test scenario so there's people you wipe with personally and you know um there's just people where you feel you have a common connection but they they're pretty psycho right so they they they, they have skills and and they say that about um about Steve Jobs, right? They have great skills when they go out and sell stuff, but that's actually something they can they can use within that relationship um, you are in with that, with another co-founder, and they completely eliminate you um, if they want to. So it's a recognizing someone's personality, and then also figuring out if that personality is something you can work with for the long term, and also anticipating all that crap you probably have to go through. I, as a founder, I, I still think, and I had Rob on, and he said, well, he, he knows what to do now. He's, 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 you know, he had a bunch of startups. But I feel that for me, it's still a crapshoot. Well, I mean, the flip side is, if you think about it, and not saying anything about you, but, you know, if a person isn't able to find that co-founder, that's also reflective of, you know, their own network or their own ability and flexibility to work with people, right? Yeah. So a lot of success isn't just about co-founder, but it's actually about managing and working with the team that you build, right? Yeah. And then if, if you, you know, if you aren't able to lead and convince and build consensus or, or all the other aspects, right? Then that also brings, you know, question into, I would say, a, a solo founder's ability to execute. 
right? I mean, so they've got all, I mean, <laughs> yeah, obviously, that's kind of devil's advocate. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I can I can totally see that scenario as well. Yeah. So, so on you, the other you, hand, yeah, when you go into financials in the financial industry, when you're looking to hedge funds, they're typically solo founders. They're rarely they rarely are teams, right? And it it is because it's easier, it seems, to get investors than to get co-founders you can really vibe with for the next 30 years. So often these things, you know, they're a little hands-off, but they, they run for a much longer time. Yeah, but even, um, you know, I mean, even like, you know, the longtime VC, John Doerr, said, you know, you have to expect your co-founders, you know, to go into battle. Right, they're going to go into yeah. battle and Absolutely. war, and that's what a starter is. And you have to know who's in the trenches with you, right? So that's that is the hard part, and that's why sometimes, you know, I would say that you really have to get to know a person before you do business with them. Like you said, I don't think it's just you know driving could be one test, but it's really sort of seeing the worst of them and seeing whether you could work with them. Or not? How do you trigger and, this too? How do you, before well, well, you hit your own. Well, that that is a difficult. Crisis. Well, that that is a difficult part. I mean, I would say, I had two situations even in my past. Like my very first startup in, uh, you know, in the late '90s, right? It was with actually my, it was with uh, two co-founders that I did my first two startups with, and then one of them, Jimmy, is my co-founder for Spark Labs, right? And Jimmy, we were friends with since our freshman year in college. And then he brought in his high school friend. And luckily it worked out because sometimes you say you don't do startups with close friends, right? But we would battle it out even to the point of yelling and screaming at, at each other in, in meeting rooms, but we never took it personally, right? So I knew that I knew their character and I could, I could trust them. On our second startup, we did bring one exec in that was great on paper, right? Like top schools, top consulting firm, you know, big tech, had resume pedigree. References actually even checked out too. But when shit hit the fan, right, he looked out for himself, right? Sure, yeah. when our startup was going well, but once it took a nosedive, you know, I would say true character comes out, right? So it, it is hard to test. Like somehow you could you could try to hunt for that, but nothing's for certain. I mean, now I'm more cautious even when we, assess companies in terms of trying to check references. If, if the references are, of course, neutral, that's a no-brainer, right? That means that someone's not willing to say, this guy's awesome or whatever, and he's being political, right? So that's a red flag in itself. But how do you really find like the negatives? And, and that's what you, you try to search for and find and prod and test. And I, I don't do it often, but sometimes I'll do role-playing and, and be more aggressive in when I'm talking to the founders to sort of try to push buttons. Um, and sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't. I mean, luckily, I mean, luckily out of like the 300 plus startups we've done, we've only had maybe, you know, I would say less than 10 of uh, conflicts among co-founders and maybe one, only one really bad <laughs> co-founder that was like lying about everything. So we got yeah. lucky in that, but but that situation, the one that was like a compulsive liar, almost I would say, we uh, after that we were we were diligent on on checking for background. 
I, I find this the crux, and I had Daniel Gross on. Um, he runs his accelerator, um, which is completely virtual, right? He never gets to see the team, at least not by default. It, it, it can happen, and they do online events. Um, they do just uh, real-world events, offline events, but generally it's online. And he was putting quite a bit of effort into the big five and, and personality traits that, that a, give you a predictive model of people's success, um, startup success, but also the, the way founder teams should be structured. And uh, unfortunately, he doesn't have a lot of predictive data, so that, that you, you can run a lot of numbers, but it's not very predictive. That's kind of the, 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 the bad news there. And I guess people change so much and things um, they, they're able to adopt, right? They adopt their, their personal survival strategies. Um, do you think there's something to it? Do you, do you think you can, you can use metrics to, to improve this? Or that's, we, we just don't know enough about how the mind actually works? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I worked at a family office that, you know, we did a battery of tests, right? Um, in terms of personality, intuitive, analytical thinking. But I think in a regular working environment, it can work, right? Like I said, people, some on paper, especially like firms like McKinsey, they're big on like what they call cursy temperament, which is essentially the Myers-Briggs in another form, yeah. right? Yeah, that's the um, precursor of Big Five, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, so they, you know, there's different firms that use that. And I, I think it, it can work in a corporate setting uh, but I don't think so in a startup setting, because that's where you get outliers, outliers of emotion, outliers of situation. Like I said, you go through big swings, ups and downs, like big wins, big failures, right? And then that's when, you know, as I mentioned before, the, the worst of a person's character comes out, right? And it de depends on how they behave and also, you know, how the team reacts. And it's really hard to assess that uh, on these different assessment, personality assessment tests, right? Because it doesn't get the, you know, it's not even called, I want to say it's even outlier situations. It's just more, you know, the more harsher situations of, of the reality of startup life. Yeah. Yeah, and I guess you also need a particular kind of people, right? So they, 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 it's harder, the, the sample size is just different than when you compare it to, to general psychology. Uh, give me an idea, do about Spark Labs. Um, so you um, did two things from what from what I gather. One is that you have your own VC fund with external investors, and you do your own investments. But also you run um, accelerators all over the globe, and you do this I, from what I can gather. And correct me if that's wrong on your own account to invest in startups. But also you do this for other companies like Mercedes-Benz, for instance. Correct. Um. No, our, our core for the accelerators, they're actually structured like VC funds for the most okay. part. They're just smaller. Um, you, know, you know, they could go up to like 10, 15 million. Mm -hmm. um, we, in, we invest in these companies. So we define accelerator. There's incubators that are more sort of, I'd say, mom and pop-ish, helping out people with business plan plans, providing space. Uh, we're like the YC model, right? YC initially started out as investing, you know, 20,000 for up to six or 7%, yeah. right? So uh, we do the same and, you know, YC now is 120,000 for six, 7%. We invest 100K for uh, up to 6%. Um, so it's investment model driven there. And we have done some corporate accelerators, 
and programs. So the Mercedes one is actually more of a program that we did with them. So uh, overall, though, Spark Labs on the accelerator side, we're, I would say, ROI driven, right? We're investing in these companies and, and we have LPs for each one. And then we, you know, we nurture them. It is a structured program, whether it's four months or six months. And then we, you know, like any firm, we actually continue to keep in touch with all the accelerator graduates and they come to us and they still bother us for their subsequent rounds and uh, stages for help. Yeah. So you, you have, you run all these programs um, in parallel. So there's one where you said it's 25,000, there's one for a hundred thousand. And I guess there's also serious a fund. Yeah. I mean, we have separate teams run, running them. So we, uh -huh. we found okay. uh, a cookie cutter sort of approach where when we first launched Spark Labs Korea, uh, December 2012, uh, we found success. I mean, Korea is a very competitive market. There was already, you know, 20 plus accelerators within that market. Um, wow. But I would say in two years, by, you know, early, mid 2015, we started getting, you know, almost first look at a lot of the hot startups at the seed stage. And we decided to replicate that model. And then, you know, we launched in Taipei and uh, ag tech, food tech focus accelerator in Australia. And we just found the right people, basically gave them our playbook, helped them with the network, and then also um, sort of showed them how we look at companies and assessing startups. And we found success. I mean, we found it on the marketing and branding side where we built up Spark Labs Korea. Now it hosts, you know, <clears throat> the largest startup demo day in the world, right? 3,000 people attend these half-day events twice a year. Taiwan has also grown to the largest startup demo day in Taiwan. You know, this past November, we just they just hosted a, a thousand in-person demo day in Taipei. And Australia too, <clears throat> I'd say within two years, they also became um, the leading accelerator in Australia. And they host a demo day of like 500 people. But it's not just the, the optics of it, it's uh, performance, I mean, it's not to solicit investment at all, but, you know, like some of our funds, like Korea, the early ones, ROI is up like almost 1,200%. Another one is also our second fund's up like 700%. So we do well in terms of obviously the positioning. We're able to generate the deal flow, but we're also able to select the winners. So we've just executed well on that side. And when you do these investments, um, you, the startups typically go through all these stages. So they, they come in, you know, with the twenty-five thousand of small investment, go to a hundred thousand, and then you do follow-up investing. But well, you, I, at one stage, and I saw in your presentations, you invested in about three hundred different startups. Um, but those are they're all of uh, all stages together. Um, well, what what is kind of the majority of this? Are most of them twenty thousand dollar bets? Uh. No, that was early 20. Now, now it's a, we, we put 100,000, most of them on the accelerator okay. side. Okay, uh, majority are, are the accelerator companies and those companies range now, you know, sort of similar to how YC matured, right? So we, we have a mix in each batch now. It's, we try to mix it up where there's some bootstrapped, but a fair amount of companies that already raised capital, you know, whether it's half million up to 5 million actually now apply to our accelerators. And so most of them, they actually don't need capital from us, right? They don't need our 100,000 if they've already raised like two, three million. Um, they just want access to the Spark Labs network 
or maybe to work with a specific partner. So that's where we've built our reputation where, you know, we've become the leading accelerator in, um, you know, in, in Asia, clearly, where people apply to our uh, different programs because they want uh, our help to accelerate their business, right? So again, it's not about capital anymore. And I think that's where, um, you know, we found that, and our thesis is that most of these markets and ecosystems, uh, whether a geography or a vertical, there, there really is only room for the top two or three accelerators. I, I, I do think in the long term, there'll be an accelerator shakeout um, because it, it is it is about, you know, capturing the deal flow and reputation and, and performance, unless you're obviously a more, uh, you know, economic development project or supported by the government, right? Yeah, well, it seems, the, 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 there is an early stage bubble right now, right? There seems to be a lot of interest into early stage work because the valuations seemed or the amount of money and required seemed relatively low. So it seemed to be relatively easy to pull off for someone who already was interested in angel investing and to bring in um, other LPs for, for a mini fund. So it seems a lot of people are, who are interested, you know, I feel the, the early stage investing now, which is often the form of an accelerator, um, is kind of the angel investing of 15 years ago. So a lot of people are gravitating towards it because of the success of the model. And I think it's 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 definitely showing its success too. I'm 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 definitely newbie to the accelerator model, so I don't I don't actually know enough how founders assess the value um, that's being created by the accelerator. And I think it it will eventually shake out itself, as you say, and I, I agree with you into whatever the internet does, right? So the, uh, you you find a relatively small number of competitors where, where 80, 90% of the market share is with the leading company. And uh, it seems like you, you already mentioned that the, the, the benefit that founders see moves away from capital and goes more towards attention, right? So it's marketing, it's a, it's a stamp of approval, it's their way to, to get onto the next round. Um, and I always wonder, will we will we see like an accelerator, maybe they're already out there, um, that is basically not even offering any funding, but just offer offers a blueprint for entrepreneurship, probably. I mean, business plan, as you say, there's a lot of help to be done, but in the end only gives you attention, right? It has an influencer network, maybe it has a huge marketing network you can, you can plug into. Sometimes I feel... For a lot of startups, and then obviously defense, probably depends if you go consumer, if you go um, more B2B, attention is much more difficult to get than money. Yeah, I, I mean, I think in the past years, um, I don't know how strong the attempts were, but there have been attempts to provide that programming, right, and connectivity uh, without the capital. Right, but I, I don't think those programs are successful. And I, I do think it has to do with just the concept of money, right? Money sort of binds the two entities together, whether it's like Y Combinator to all their uh, participants, right? And, you know, kudos to Y Combinator. I mean, I think they're what, 16 or 17 years in. If anything, their influence has grown, right? And just, just to be totally blunt, I mean, you know, we're only eight, we're a young firm, we're eight years in. But I remember when I first heard of YC, when they're asking, you know, whatever, 6% for 20,000, <clears> I was talking with my co-founder, Jimmy, at that time. We're like, man, who would get 6% for 20,000? Like, like, we did our first startup on, like, our savings and credit cards. We were like, man, I'd rather just get two credit cards and max it out. 
We're joking yeah, about it sounds, that. It never appealed to me, right? It sounds it sounds crazy, this initial equation, um, to be honest. It, it was something where I felt <clears throat> like you. It's like, I don't, I mean, there is certainly the follow-up investment round, but I, I never understood the YC model. And maybe I never understood the accelerator model. Maybe that's my problem. Well, well, that's the thing. The funny thing is now, obviously, we're drinking the Kool-Aid, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> You've been going through this process. So I'm, I'm, I'm curious where, where your change of heart comes from. Well, when we launched it at first, you know, we, you know, we were flexible in our terms, right? But as we understood the value that we provided, right? And it's not just whatever, um, you know, selling something right now. It's, you know, we did provide actual value to the companies. And then there was the network that grew and the brand and reputation. So that's why we also became more stringent on our terms. And, you know, we would, you know, ask for that up to 6% for our 100,000 investment. And we, we did find that um, it is the money that binds. So, it, you know, I don't think there will be a movement towards like doing these programs without sort of that money transaction, right? Regardless of whether they need the capital or not, it does bind them to the program. Or, or binds them to us, right? And from there, obviously, um, if you execute well, right, and the entrepreneurs like you, they become your best evangelists, right? And they say, which a lot of companies have done now, um, you know, example is one company, they actually raised 2.5 million before entering our program. And afterwards, I would say they, they loved it. So they referred another entrepreneur that also raised close to the same amount and said, hey, you have to do Spark Labs. Right, because they actually really help you out in this and this manner. Yeah. Well, one thing I noticed, and I think this is this is maybe a, it's kind of an accident. I noted um, AWS is very generous with startup credits, right? So the, there is an accelerator program. There is different stages, and you probably know better. But in one of those, you get up to I think five hundred thousand dollars of free AWS credits. Uh, but only if you go through an accelerator program. I think that's incredibly generous. And of course, that's that's kind of like an investment round right there, right? Because for a lot of startups, server costs is probably the biggest expense of the payroll. Yeah, I mean, there's so many now in the ecosystem. I mean, if you add it up, even like not, not just AWS credits, but all these software credits, I mean, that's how the big tech companies get leads, right? Sure. So if you add it up, like some of, some of our programs, they have like, credits for like over a million on various services. So it's yeah. not, now it's become such a commodity. It, I, I don't think startups look at that. I mean, unless you're completely outside server costs, right? Um, you know, they do really look at the program elements, you know, what, what they're known for. They look at obviously the metrics afterwards. And that's why, you know, sort of what, you know, whatever you think of them, like Y Combinator is the global leader. And if anything, their influence just has grown, right? So yeah. When you when you when you look back at Y Combinator, certainly an inspiration, I guess, for, for, for your current company, what do you feel was really the, the ingredient for the success there? Did they just tap into an opportunity they didn't know much about and it just took off? Or was there some hidden genius um, that they brought to the um, um, forefront? I think I mean Paul Graham definitely had foresight into creating the program, right? And I think one of the best moves is that he moved from um, Boston to Silicon Valley and really brought it there. Um, and then he just tapped into 
you know, and built that network that surrounded YC. And he did it very well in terms of the graduates that went through the program and then sort of creating that ecosystem, right? And it just only continually sort of grew and he created the, the feeding frenzy that it was on their demo days. You know, he capped, Initios capped at what, three or 400 attendees, right, of just investors. And we, we take a different approach though, because we're in these more, um, I would say, less mature markets in Silicon Valley. So that's why our demo day, we open it up, right? Because we want to create excitement and interest in startups and the ecosystem. So that's why in South Korea, even though it was, I would say, one of the more mature ecosystems in the world globally, it's still nowhere close to Silicon Valley. So that's why we we grew it from like 200 to 500 to 1,000 to 2,000. And now like the most that attend was over 3,000 people. And, and we definitely don't inflate the numbers. It's like 3,000 people come for this event uh, from across the spectrum of the ecosystem. You know, we have 400 plus VCs plus corporate, you know, corporate development execs to entrepreneurs to, um, you know, government officials, everything. Yeah, what's, uh, I'm curious about South Korea. I don't know anything about it. I mean, I, I do know South Korea, but not the venture market in particular. And what do you feel is very different in South Korea? So we, we, we know we have this irrational exuberance of public markets currently in the US. Everyone wants to go public and is able to go public, it seems, so have a little bit of backing through the aspects. Um, we have um, quite a bit of an IPO boom. Um, just before that, we had um, just moving valuations and there's, there's a bunch of companies and the unicorns who seem to be completely outsized in their valuation. In between, there seems to be kind of an empty zone and then we have a bit of a bubble, we think, who knows, um, of early stage startups and series A rounds. Where is the Korean market right now? And where, where is most of the money coming from? Is that uh, local money? Is that um, money from China? Is it American money? Yeah, so Korea, I mean, background is that, you know, it's, you know, a country of 50 million. And yeah. um, I would say, interesting, even since the 90s, uh, it's sort of outsized in terms of its uh, consumer consumption, right? So yeah. it's the uh, sixth largest e-commerce market in the world, right? It's fourth or fifth largest, depending on the metrics. So uh, for luxury goods, so a lot of these markets, you know, even though it's 11th or I think 12th largest economy in the world, it's like top, top 10. And so from this, you're able to create uh, multi-billion dollar tech unicorns since the 90s. And innovation has been occurring. I'm not sure if you've seen like, uh, like Bloomberg does their innovation index. Like Korea has been number one, like something like, I forgot, seven out of the past nine years. Yes, of course. I mean, we, we, uh, these stats, and I mean, I've been to South Korea like a dozen times, so I, yeah. I'm pretty familiar with all those. Uh, I don't speak any Korean, but you know, I, yeah. I can say a few words. I don't either. So, <laughs> but, but I, I, the, the Korea itself as an economy seems an amazing success story. Um, but do I was never aware, and because that's my ignorance, what the venture market is like there. It seemed to be a backwater, but seemingly it's it's the opposite. Yeah, like I said, so, you know, since even the 90s, there, you know, mid 90s, 95, 96, Nexon was created. That's a the leading gaming company in South Korea. It's a $28 billion market cap. Naver or NHN occurred, which is a leading internet portal. They're actually the creators of Line, which is a chat app that's uh, number one in Japan and Taiwan and other Asian countries. 
Um, and then the venture, you asked about the venture capital um, market or space. So Korea has a very healthy ecosystem at the seed and series A. Um, there's some gaps, I would say, at the mid-stage. But interestingly, interestingly enough, the mid-stage market um, has been filled by top uh, firms throughout the world. Like Sequoia Capital in the U.S. is the one that led Coupon's uh, Series C round, 100 million. So Coupon's going to go public, you know, within the week, right? Um, subsequently, SoftBank later, SoftBank's uh, Vision Fund also invested into Coupon like uh, two billion uh, recently, and even uh, companies such as Kleiner, firms such as Kleiner, they also invested in a mid-stage round for a fintech play called Toss. Um, leading firms in China also come into Korea, like Hill House, which is the largest hedge fund in China. They've been very active in the Korean venture market at the mid-stage. And yeah. Singapore Sovereign Fund, GIC, they've been active to uh, a lot of Japanese VC firms. You know, even though it's already crowded in the early stage with Korean firms, they, they also seek out deals. And I spoke with one Japanese VC. Um, they said they look at Korea more than Japan because it's more mature. Yeah. yeah it seems Korea is, is on this amazing trajectory. And then when, when you look at the, the investments you've done into with Sparklips Korea's arm, what's kind of the, the, the what, what terms of technology or in terms of startups or in terms of the way they are organized, what you feel is quite a difference to the U.S., assuming we know how the U.S. kind of looks like right now. Maybe maybe things are changing so quickly on the ground in the U.S. here as well. Maybe I'm, I'm just not aware of it. Well, I mean, in terms of just general sort of financing and valuation, um, you know, when the U.S. sort of, I guess, uh, pops and goes up and down in terms of like this seed valuation, Korea sort of follows, right? Some of the some of the valuations I think were a bit high in the Korean market at times. Um, and then in terms of like different types of technologies, I mean now Korea's maturing where you see a lot of different plays, right? Let's say in let's say if you look at China for a while, it, it was a lot more consumer plays. But during that time, so a few years back, Korea was churning out not just consumer plays, but a lot of enterprise startups, whether it's SaaS or AI or a lot of deep tech. Uh, biotech Korea has always been strong on. So we, we've seen a lot of startups and innovation come out of that space. Uh, biotech and medical devices for the past like eight years since we were founded. Uh, interesting trend is also the past three, three four years, a lot of the um, <clears throat> founding teams that apply to our accelerator program they've been older because they're from biotech or deep tech plays. And you see these, uh, you know, execs from Samsung or LG or other places come out to, to do their first startup. So that I think the average age, I don't have the latest data, but the average age in South Korea, first time entrepreneurs is trending like the US. So the US average age of first time entrepreneurs is like 40, 41, right? So you get obviously the- Oh, it's that high. I, I would have guessed like 30, early 30s. No, no, it's it's forty forty one. There's been several studies that okay. have shown that it's because obviously the consumer startups are done by, you know, usually twenty somethings, but these sort of quote unquote I would say harder tech problems, they're people in their forties and fifties, 
And so that's the same thing we've seen in Korea now is it's trending uh, much older. So we have a lot of first time entrepreneurs that are in their 40s and 50s that, uh, you know, come to us for funding or, or apply to our accelerator. Yeah. Well, one thing that I, I've been debating back and forth here on the podcast is kind of this, this old idea, and I think it's, there's quite a bit of philosophy in there. When you think of the ideal entrepreneur you want to find, and you can classify this into, into what kind of startup uh, you, you're looking at, would you lean towards someone who is literally the 18-year-old the um, dropout out of college, has an idea that seems to be taking off, um, and is going viral already on YouTube, or would you rather um, have the entrepreneur who's very seasoned, right? Who who has the wisdom, who knows um, all the pitfalls and all over the, the 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 industries? What do you think makes the better entrepreneur, or is there no such thing as the best entrepreneur? They all have their own place. Yeah, I don't think I have that cookie cutter sort of framework at all, right? Because as long as let's say if it's a consumer play, you know, ideally it would be someone in their twenties, right? Um, maybe not right out of college, but it could be around that age, like mid twenties. You know, maybe uh, a bit more mature. But if it's someone like you know still in college but has some sense of maturity and self reflection, you know, that that's someone that I would gravitate towards. Um, and again, of course, it depends on on the industry too that they're they're trying to tackle, right? Because it's it's not just about obviously age uh, and, or even experience. It, it's also about, you know, their sort of worldview, right? And how they think and process things right? and how they interact with people, right? <clears throat> the worst is if someone is, you know, regardless of age, if they're, let's say, too stubborn and unwilling to listen, right? That's definitely a red flag for me personally. So um, Steve Jobs type. Yeah, I guess yeah. so. <laughs> Yeah, well, so you would pass on, on Steve Jobs. Um, well, unless unless obviously their vision is incredible, right? And then you you obviously have to sort of bite the bullet and deal with it, right? Yeah, exactly. But that's that's so hard to figure out because you know what I think these ground rules make sense. Nobody wants to work with a real ass, right? I, I was I was talking to Jay Zhao about that. He yeah. said, you know, that's just really difficult. But sometimes you have to, so you can't exclude those people either. So. I think the secret sauce of finding that, that product market fit and uh, the founders fit, that seems to be, and we are not trillionaires, so we would have figured it out. We would all be trillionaires. We don't have to worry about it anymore. It seems to be something that is a moving target and nobody has a real good rule for this, right? So if you, if you have something that scales up and is super popular and you're Mark Zuckerberg, you, you probably have some social shortcomings, but nobody cares because your startup has a trillion users already. Um, and if you if you are sitting on a pool where you have to sell more on an idea where that's not yet well cooked and Stephanie hasn't taken off yet, then you just have to be nicer. Is, is that kind of the bottom line? Yeah, and I, I also think that's where the benefit of, of working in a team setting, even on the VC side, helps, right? Yeah. Because someone like me, I'm pretty thick-skinned, so I don't get bothered by much, right? So, you know, if someone's like a, a jerk, I'm, you know, I, I could deal with it. Right, or I'll talk back to them, and you know, you know, sort of at least calm them down, right? Or uh, you know, what a couple of our CEOs—they're horrible at communicating, right? You send them an email, they don't reply for two, three weeks, right? And my partners—they get upset at it. 
So I'm like, I'll just deal with it, right? Because I don't really care. But on the flip side, there's certain personality traits that maybe I don't like, but my partner, Jimmy or Frank, you know, they might be able to deal with it better. So I think that's where the benefit of working in a team, even on the VC side helps, because you could deal with the different personalities, you know, within your portfolio. Well, I always felt, and I think this, this is still something I haven't fully figured out as well, is there's so much incentive of both sides to lie, right? So it, in the initial process, um, <clears throat> obviously the entrepreneurs want to make their, 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 their startup to look extremely big. Um, there's so many ways they can lie because you can only verify so many things. On the investor side, they want their influence and their future impact to, to overstate. Um, I wouldn't call it lying necessarily, but that we all kind of push the limits of what's marketing, what's boastful, and what's actually a lie. And I think this keeps going on, right? You're in this, in this startup process, you have to report to your investors a certain kind of communication. I feel the incentives are actually for both sides to, especially if they're looking at a more shorter term transaction. Um, so they, they basically take your money, they spend it, and then they go on to the next investor. I, I, I feel like the, the way how well the startup industry works is kind of amazing to me because both sides have a, a lot of incentive to just at least the entrepreneurs have the incentive to take the money and run away to Russia and for the for the investors is to you know sue everyone into oblivion but it doesn't happen which is quite amazing to me I don't think so I don't think there's no incentive to lie right even I would say um, but there's a big incentive to lie that's what I'm saying I, I no that's what I'm saying I disagree Right, okay. because because okay. you have to take a long view on it, right? Because there, for every cruise that pops, you know, within a two, three year cycle, majority of the startups, especially at the seed stage, right? Think about it. Dropbox didn't go public until twelve years after they went through YC, right? If you're looking at that long view, it has to be a relationship. It has to be a marriage with you and the founders, and luckily, you know, the culture that we built. But also even just the personalities. I mean, I think you sort of know me where I'm super blunt. I'm like blunt to a fault, right? And that's actually even, you know, on these personality assessments, that might be one of my weaknesses because I'm too blunt, right? But it's not just me. I mean, I'm, I'm the more harsh, blunt person on the team. But everyone on our, on our team is pretty transparent and actually, you know, asks for that in the same way of our founders. Right? And, it, yeah. and, if I, and if I could tell that they're hiding something, I drill down or I get, you know, I get very, uh, that's where I get very annoyed too, or I'll get upset, right? Yeah. And so if you have to take a long view of these things. And so if, it, if that's the case, then, you know, there's, there's no incentive to lie because the truth always comes out, I would say in some form or another, right? Yeah, I, I, I'm sure I would agree with this. Think about it, it's kind of like, like a bank that gives out mortgages, right? So obviously they're in for the long term. Um, so and so is the family that moves in, assuming that is a family, right? A single family home. And the bank says, well, we give you this loan for the next 30 years and we, this is kind of a partnership. You give us, we give, us, we give you a brand new home and then when your family, um, you know, the kids are, are grown, you have enough money and you, it's all gonna be fine. But there's a huge incentive to just take the money, get the house, and you can't pay the mortgage and run away, which is exactly what you can do in the U.S. Still, it doesn't happen, right? So I'm, I'm amazed. And that's something that, that, that I feel is, is, is maybe stronger in the U.S. than in Europe, but that's hard to compare. I always felt the, the amazed by the kind of 
the honesty and the 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 the, the brevity of of people you interact with. Ninety nine percent, and even online, where people could really um, very easily um, defraud you, they rarely do. I'm, I'm I'm amazed how well this works. So it's probably a sign of a wider societal uh, programming that we are under, which is good, right? Because we are ancestors of people who were honest and who realize that the honest behavior is the one that they want, unless they want a really short life. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's short-term players out there always, right? And even you, you might see more of the behavior, let's say, for example, it could be like China, where you hear a lot of these startups sort of fraud and, um, you know, cover-ups or ups or whatnot. But even in that society, things eventually come out. Maybe it's a little too late for many investors' tastes. But, you know, I would say even some of the things that we caught some of our bad CEOs um, sort of exaggerating or lying about, you know, it came out either directly from our inquiry or one of our co-investors, right? Because they assume that we might not talk to each other, right? Yeah. That's a st those are the stupid entrepreneurs, I would say. Right. But eventually we talked to survivors, right? So this is a huge survivorship bias here. So obviously the startups where you mentioned Dropbox where it worked out, um, they're the honest ones and I agree with you. But there might be a lot of honest ones we don't see. And there might be a lot of I call them Steve Jobs type who are not they're not liars, but they're 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 extremely um in love with themselves and their own opinions, um, maybe for good, maybe for worse, but you only know afterwards, right? So that's the real problem. You don't know when you're still dealing with that entity that hasn't grown into something useful yet. Yeah, so I, I mean, there, I think there's a difference between the incentive to lie versus bad behavior too. I, I, would, I would distinguish that, right? Sure, yeah. Because these CEOs who I would say I don't like and how they treat people, right? Even well-known ones in the, in the market, uh, they might be, transparent to the investors, right? Or forced to be at times, but then, you know, they don't tell them about what's going on, like the, the more, I would say, detrimental behavior, right? Whether it's culture, whether it's like, you know, I don't know, harassing a woman employee to cheating someone out of stock options or something like that. That doesn't necessarily come into the forefront. So, I mean, I think- It sounds like that happened in one of the startups you were involved with. No, not with ours. So no, okay. no, I'm, I'm just citing more public examples. See, right? I'm fishing for some for, for some stories, yeah. <laughs> no, you but don't I, give me any. Well, no, like I said, even with you probably can't. No, you, you're I, not yeah, allowed to. I will name it. I will name it. But yeah, no, like I said, even with one of our uh, problem CEOs, well, we confirmed it, but also even the investors started talking, right? And that's why I was surprised. Yeah. Is like why why did this person not assume we would eventually talk to our, our co-investors? and exchange notes and then find all this, right? So yeah. some people mistakenly think that, you know, investors are in different silos, right? So one more thing I was really curious about is how you think of um, what technologies are really trending right now? Do you see there's a lot of, um, obviously these, these big major trends like in hype words, obviously like AI, we see those coming up. What do you feel in the startups that you've seen you invested in the last 12 months, the last 18 months, what's like a, a major trending technology and you feel this is this is something that there is some some real stamina to it and that's gonna continue to be a strong trend, so to speak. Yeah, I'm not sure if any technology stands out for me and I might be the worst one in my partners because I'm not, uh, I don't okay. 
I don't get excited that easily. <laughs> um, but I'm, yeah. there, there's areas that some of my colleagues are excited about, like precision medicine, precision medicine, or um, you know wider uses of AI. Because obviously AI was hot three, four years ago, and you know it was probably overstated with. 70% of like startups saying they're AI, you know, not having any real AI in it. Um, but, but now you see actual sort of solid uh, AI plays and data plays coming, you know, into market. So I think that's interesting. Um, see more and more sort of, at least in Asia, we see more um, enterprise software plays. But again, that that's not new tech. I'm just trying to think if there's any like, New tech. Um, you know, I, I think um, also you see this sort of trend, I would say, uh, not new technology, but in terms of sort of data, right? So different data aggregators, right? Where, where um, you know, before startups obviously would try to disrupt the middleman, but companies, uh, you know, there's companies out there that are becoming a middleman for data. I example is we invest in a company called Populous, you know, we were their first check, and they basically take mobility data um, from players such as Uber and Lyft, and they also add scooter data, traffic data. They package it and sell it to cities or automakers and other players like that. Right. Yeah. So, so that's that, that's been interesting in the whole data data space. There seems to be an endless amount of, of these plays, and maybe maybe that's that's really well needed. Um, of getting data that's kind of where people don't really know how how valuable it is. So it's usually not financial data where people already run AI on and trade immediately on it. But um, a lot of most hedge funds are, are open to to basically throwing around ten thousand dollars a month deals on data that makes them trade better. Um, that's a small number if you can trade a certain amount of volume. And there seems to be so much new data out there. Um, not all of this can be used for trading, but it can be used by someone else, like a city, for instance, um, that has been gathered by all these devices kind of by accident. And it's relatively cheap. And uh, there's always someone who can make money off this, right? Either directly in trading or indirectly. I feel I, I just was talking to someone and we came up with like a few dozen of those plays that, that seem to have the same um, market um, um, analytics. So you have low, you have high volume data for low price, and there's someone on the other end, very specialized, who can make a lot of money off this. I wonder how sustainable that is. I mean, that's definitely a trend. I think there's, there's a real value to it. I wonder if this is the spawn of a new industry, like a new oil industry or refinery industry, so to speak, or if this is going to go away. I'm, I haven't made up my mind yet. I think it's already trending where, where we see several years ago, like you said, people might not have known what to do with the data, right? or how to package it, or even corporates didn't know how to execute on it. But, um, you know, on the surface, it, you know, you sort of question how could they not know, but they really didn't know. And fast forward to now the past, like, you know, a couple of years where corporates are actually willing to pay um, a decent sum for the data, right? That's already also sort of packaged and analyzed. So we've seen that in various industries that maybe we wouldn't have man imagined before. You know, whether it's like, let's say, pet industry data or different retail uh, verticals, right, or different um, uh, large industrial companies. So they're all willing now to 
pay for the data. And I, I think it's a trend in terms of that it's here to stay because, you know, more and more sources of data are coming out and churning. More sensors are being like uh, placed everywhere across the world, right? So there'll be more data. Data will only grow. It's just a matter of how you analyze, package, and sell it. I think so. It, it is really yeah. here. Like some people say, you know, data will be the new oil. So yeah, I do think that the, the refinery business there um, will 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 make a big impact and. Um, we, we need a certain structure for this in order to feed that into AI, right? So the AI can, it, it, it still is reliant on relatively structured data models. So there, there's exceptions to this, but generally it still, still wants a certain data center that's not too noisy. And, um, but once we have that, the, I think the AIs can make, can really execute an, a decision model on top of that. And that's really, really cheap. That's the amazing part, how cheap it is, right? So once you build these, these, these models once, you can you can run off with the model and it's basically free and you can make um you can fork it off so you can you can find sub models to it define sub models to it um i think there's something promising there as a as a as a how the world will look like in 20 years from now where, where most of the decisions we do are actually not done by us but are done by ai because it's so much cheaper and so much better we can focus on that one decision per year that's really of importance yeah, I, I think it'll make decision making more efficient, right? But it could, it could also be sort of dangerous at times too, if you think about it, right? Because in some ways, at you know the old school model of corporates uh, hiring, you know, stra strategic consulting firms like McKinsey and Bain to, you know, let them make the decision to fire people, right? People, you know, in power might pass off decisions to an AI model. Right to make hard decisions, and it might not be just firing people. Right, it could be where to shoot missiles and everything else. Right, so I think there's always a balance. Right, moving forward in terms of thinking about it, like how much you rely on AI and how much you pass off. Because at the end of the day, I I, I always sort of look at human nature too. Right, most people I yes. say joke yeah, there's, yeah. yeah, there's reserved spaces um, that I think. And you know, shooting rockets obviously shooting missiles. That's sure. certainly not what you want want AI to 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 pull the trigger on. But mm -hmm. I think there's so many there's so many of these everyday decisions. I think it's already the case. Like, which route are we taking, right? So, what yeah. should we should where should we go to get gas? Um, I mean, there's an app for all of this, and we, we may, might not call an AI, but you know, the mm -hmm. AI is just the next step. We don't looking at raw data anymore. The data has been pre-filtered to pre-decision. Um, mechanisms and you know police and in many places i just learned that a couple of weeks ago has kind of a minority report pre-crime um, analysis so they look at license plates and they have facial recognition when they drive through the neighborhood and it gives them a picture of how likely is that person involved in a crime not just a rap sheet also it makes a future prediction they don't have to act on this right that's their decision but it gives them that ana analysis data well that, that that's like one of the gray areas that you know on a lighter note not rockets but obviously such decisions, right? Like, you know, will those AI, will the AI analytics bias the police in that way too, right? So it already does. And like social does. media, we're already biased by this. I think we're biased. Yeah. yeah. So if yeah. anything, you 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 would want, but if it, if AI pr promotes better decision models, you would want that to actually counter your biases, right? I don't know. I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure. You know, bias is is a bad word for for 
high order pattern recognition formats, right? So basically we, we, we think of biases because we, it has, it, it's, it's kind of this modern, modern word for something where we apply the wrong decision algorithm. Instead of looking at particular information, we're looking at the general picture. Sure. And uh, that, that uh, the, the question is, and I think this is a new topic where it comes in because of the, 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 we were overwhelmed by more and more information and the easiest way, um, and maybe not the easiest way, I think everyone, including AI, who wants to make good decisions has to vary their, their decision level. So once you have too much information, you obviously go a step back and say, no, I, this is too much. I can't, there's too much noise, so to speak. We, we need to go a level higher and see what, what patterns do we see on that friend level. And if you see a pattern and you know already there is a pattern there, you jump on it because that's the only thing you feel you can do with that amount of information. But I think this is exactly where AI comes in. It basically goes deeper in and can analyze more data and give us all this like pre-information pre so we can focus on the highest level and don't have to go back on, as you say, biases into categories that are not relevant anymore. Um, but obviously yeah. AI can manipulate us, right? Some, some bad actor can, can, can change that. We will never know. That's, but we, I think we already had that problem, but kind of we rely on all this knowledge from our ancestors. We really don't know if it works or what kind of what biases are in there. I think it's a valid question. Yeah, I mean, obviously I'm for it in terms of making life more efficient. And if it's like low level, mid level decisions, right? Um, you know, depending on the case of these higher level decisions, you know, that, that's where I would just be a little more cautious because, you know, I think it's just because at the end of the day, it's human nature, right? I would say most most people are either lazy or afraid to make hard decisions, right? Yeah. They're worried about either their reputation. It's risky. Yeah, it's risky. Yeah. Yeah. So so that's all. That's always a danger, right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I I've been pondering the influence, and I don't know if you ever thought about this. Um, the 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 influence of religious thinking and religious, but more as a meta religion, not necessarily associated with one religion. Do um, I, I think there is certainly we, we can talk about that too. I feel like the self fulfilling prophecy that we force ourselves to be positive, that we force ourselves, or at least a subgroup of our of of our population, forces themselves to take a risk. Um, and I, I'm I'm not sure, and that's that's kind of my question. A, how much of an influence do you feel has religion? And then B, going further into it, do you think that this kind of risk-taking that's encouraged by religion, um, very, very specific risk-taking, is a self-fulfilling prophecy that there is a better world, there is a better life, there is a better, that this, this what you do can lead to a better life for everyone. If, if this is something that can be done by, say, 99% of the population, um, I, I'm sorry, I got lost. You're sort of asking in terms of like religion's impact on what either society or entrepreneurship or what the framework, sorry. Well, first society, obviously, immediately, but I think in entrepreneurship, it's very, it really resembles entrepreneurship. So the, the, the idea, the proper way of looking at the world is probably, well, there's all this nature out there and all they do is try to kill me. So you know what, I'm just going to stay in my cave and do nothing. That, that should be the proper outcome. But we obviously don't do it because we've learned that we we overestimate our chances of survival. We overestimate our own input. We overestimate the amount of free will that's out there, which is strange. It's not rational, but it, it's helped us to create this 
this self-fulfilling prophecy. And I think the same is true with entrepreneurship. Most entrepreneurs think they succeed or do the odds are what 99% of early stage startups never go anywhere. But in the mind of that entrepreneur, you're not, you're the 1%. And it's silly, right? The, the rationality and the way we, we deal with this, with, with the self-fulfilling prophecy, they are quite at odds. It's interesting. Okay, I never thought about that way. Um, I, I mean, you could say, I guess, religion has an impact. Um, I mean, depending on the religion, right? If it's like sort of Judeo-Christian, you know, I could see that influence because their God is positioned as a creator, right? Where he works, and then they sort of focus on the value of work, right? Whether it's Pilgrim's Progress or 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 whatnot. Um, I mean, you know, there's this idea of progress and achievement and growth, right? In other religions, I guess framework, I mean, I'm not an expert in like Hinduism, but there in more of the set caste system, there isn't this, you know, I think, you know, you're more accepting of the position that you're given, right? But then there's also even, I would say, well, it's interesting now to think about even now since you got me thinking about this, like non-religious frameworks, right? Because if you look at someone that is atheist and is, let's say, like a true uh, determinist, right? If you look at Hawking's, right, or even I, I would, I would guess I'm, I'm not sure of Elon Musk's origi- uh, religious background, but I would say he's a determinist, like Hawking's, where he believes it's pure cause and effect world, right? And that means that eventually, based on man's evolutionary path that we will eventually destroy the earth. So Hawking's theory was only way to save our race and humankind is to escape earth. And I think my guess is part of Musk's sort of entrepreneurial drive is he's, you know, I'm just guessing that he's part determinist and he wants to save us by going to Mars, right? And I think that's a viewpoint of maybe not a large segment of the population, but some segment. So I think there's different drivers. What I'm saying is there's a religious component that could drive certain entrepreneurs, but there's also a non-religious framework of thinking that could drive entrepreneurs. Oh, for sure. For sure. What what I tried to say is religion is is kind of, I consider it a software upgrade to our mind. And what I'm I'm trying to say, it's it's one of those big abstract things Mm -hmm. that didn't everyone's had used to be more than it is now, but now it's more embodied in institutions and in the state um, than it is embodied in people's minds, because that's how we felt it was most efficient. And people don't really realize the concept so much anymore. And because it's it's so ingrained. And um, the, 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 the point I'm trying to make is that Entrepreneurship seems to be an irrational, um, long term, it's not irrational, it's very rational, for the, but for the individual, uh, not for the community, for, for the individual, it seems to be an irrational um, optimism. But it turns out, and this is kind of the, the the interesting part, and I think religion is just one part of this in general. You can you can this is this is deeply ingrained into into uh, um, our DNA and our thinking. Um, is the sense of exploration, the sense of looking for something better, looking going to the stars. Right is another example. I just we we always think there is maybe the grass is greener on the other side. And entrepreneurs take this to the next level. They take that risk and say, okay, I'm going to execute on this belief, even if I don't know if it's true or not. Um, and 
in that sense, I think it's just like religion, but you know, we, we it's it's we we can determine what's we we can talk about the, the the specific differences. What I wanted to find out is, say we we motivate ninety percent or ninety five percent of the world to be an entrepreneur and to think like an entrepreneur, right? Mm. Do you think that's sustainable? Are we able to go into this next future, right? This next future world where we only have one thought because everything else is decided by AI and it's perfect, including our food choices. And we don't never have to worry about anything, but we have one thought and one decision that we make and that becomes a trillion dollar startup. Is that the, how everyone can operate on this planet? I would, I would guess so, right? Because I would say the base core of, of human sort of nature is they have to have a purpose, right? And yeah. I, I think that purpose can be entrepreneurship, but it's definitely this purpose of work, right? There's that famous, uh, you know, I'm sure there's that famous uh, World War II story where uh, one of the leaders of a Nazi concentration camp, um, uh, what is it? I think he was reading Dostoevsky. So he took the theory, right, that um, you know, once I think the camp was bombed and then they were making, uh, I, I guess, uh, whatever, they were making parts for, I think, tanks or something, right? And even though that the concentration camp members were against their purpose, there was some purpose, right? And then the, the camp was bombed, so he just had them mind, mindlessly moving, you know, the rubble from one side of the camp to another. And then people started trying to kill themselves because that didn't have any purpose in mind. So what I'm saying is basically there's everyone has a driving. They want some sense of purpose. Right. And I don't think there is maybe I'm biased, a greater purpose than sort of creating something. It doesn't have to be, let's say, startup entrepreneurship. Right. But it has to be some some idea of creating something with a purpose. And so I could see, yes, you know, as. AI drives away base decisions, right? And what are we left with the core? It's a purpose for some type of work. And if it's, and as we're, you know, moving towards obviously more of independent entrepreneurs, um, people's, you know, doing sort of more freelancing, right? I, I think that'll be a core part of it, right? Whether it's big or small entrepreneurship. Yeah, well, I think AI will take away any kind of repetitive work. And we think of the repetitive work that we don't like and be happy that it's gone away. But repetitive work is also where we, where we create our excellence, right? Where we, where we feel we invested 10,000 hours and then we, we, we know more than anyone else in the industry or at least as much. And I think what, what, what's happening is that there's only one person, one individual out there who goes through this cycle of learning, a, a very small number, and then everyone can just use that model and as efficient you know as we can play golf like tiger woods maybe not with the with, with our mechanics but we know how he does it and so so that will will distribute in like an instantly through the internet and then these productivity gains are massive right so if if we actually adopt this and we find a way to i don't know if the neural link is the way to do it but we find a way to get our brain to to learn as quickly as machines we're going to look at you know a gdp that's 100 times higher than what we're looking at right now in 20 30 years from now so that's yes. the science that's a science fiction story but i feel there's a lot a lot of potential there and hopefully it's coming together i think the adoption is the problem where i've been lamenting especially the last 10 15 years where adoption wasn't as strong as in many 
areas, social media, obviously, and there's a bunch of others where exceptions uh, where adoption was missing. No, I, I, I would agree with that because if anything, you know, I'm not, <clears throat> I'm far from utopian. I'm more uh, obviously someone that believes in human nature of Lord of the Flies. But, you know, I think human potential is more untapped, right? If anything, we are too pessimistic of human nature, of education and the effects on it, right? Um, and there hasn't been equal opportunity across our societies, right? But if people are given a chance, I think they will surprise everyone and each other, right? To do more and achieve. And if AI sort of is a factor in leveling the playing field, I think I agree with you that you'll see far more pro productivity, right? Whether it's big or small across society, um, and just people have to be given access, right? I mean, there's even, you know, a little off topic, but you know, like when Sebastian Thurn was a, you know, he first put his uh, course online at Stanford, right? I think I remember him giving a talk where he just said, surprisingly, like the top, I think like hundred students in the class were not Stanford students. They were the Obviously. people. That were, yeah. There were people that were tuning in outside and giving that effort, right? Yeah. So it's needed access to Stanford level education and they were doing better than the Stanford students. Oh yeah, I, I would have no, I would be surprised if there's a Stanford student even in the top 100. I would be surprised because they, they rely on a very outdated, very rigorous selection standard and they don't even get everyone to choose from, right? They get a very small number of applications and then they, they apply something from the 19th century and that they would hit the top 100. I think that's very unlikely. Um, so yeah, that, that, I mean, the education, you know, what we have on YouTube, the knowledge that we have, there, all the professors who put stuff up there. Um, and now that people have the access for basically free, that's already changing our, our children right now. And it's, it's, it's a massive change where, where the education that we thought is necessary becomes kind of just boredom because it has, and I think this plays a big role in this COVID thing is people wanted to get out of, they wanted to cloudify themselves. They wanted to escape those, those kind of the, 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 the regular exercise they were involved in that they felt has come to, to an end of their productivity growth. And we see that productivity growth was pretty terrible the last 30 years. And I think this is how everyone is now personalizing, extremely customizing their own experience of learning and how they work. And there's something really fascinating about that, that we might see productivity figures. You know, there was this headline yesterday. I don't know if it's what, what's the driver, but obviously COVID changed everything in terms of GDP growth. But it seems to be if, if you have a population that's eager enough to adopt this, and I think the American population is as eager as anyone on the planet, maybe together with Chinese and Koreans, um, if you adopt those, there's an unlimited number of, of GDP growth you can um, um the multiple you get the multiples in GDP growth you can go to, and I I feel we finally see this with COVID because people said, okay, I get out of these routines and I change my routine. I really want that, and I want to stay home and figure this out. And maybe it's actually happening. Yeah, I mean it's interesting to see what will happen in a post-COVID world. But you know, people assume, you know, I'm still, you know, jury still out for me in my mind. But you know, structures, you know, the corporate structure, the walls of, of a company of being physically in person, you know, has that been restrictive on productivity in some people, right? Because when you deal with these structures, especially in large companies, right, um, then you could create more inefficiencies, right? Yeah. But if you do away with the walls, right, the tangible and intangible, right, people working from home, they don't have to deal with the politics of kissing ass to their boss or their colleagues, 
you know. Well, maybe... women have been complaining for, for a long time, right? This is a work yeah. environment that can easily go toxic. And they can't really describe it to, to male co-workers because they simply are not under the same pressure. And I think there's a lot to it, right? So for them, it should be something they they should excel a lot at this, right? Now that the the table has turned, so to speak. But I think it happens for everyone. Um, and it's especially when you when you see GitHub um, is a community where it's completely free, right? But there's all this coding work there. And nobody asks if you're qualified. Nobody asks for your resume. It, it, people ask and, and they, they check your changes. And if they're good, they're good. It doesn't matter if you're a 12-year-old kid or if you're a 90-year-old um, retiree. Yeah, I, I think it's good that, you know, especially platforms like you mentioned as GitHub, where it's more, you know, a true merit-based, right? Because I, I could even say, even in the VC industry, you have people that are, you know, some people that are lazy about their decision-making, right? Yeah. So they'll naturally gravitate towards, oh, this guy's a Stanford, MIT grad. Or they'll be like, oh, he worked, he was a PM at Google and Facebook, right? There's these sort of lazy surface-level signals that some people, um, might use, right? And part of it might be because they feel like they're overwhelmed that they get, you know, a thousand startup pitches they have to filter somehow. But I think, you know, you're missing a lot of the talent out there in the world too, right? So yeah, it's a terrible model if they use this, right? I mean, it's better than no model. Um, but <laughs> it's a it's a terrible model. Um, think about models. So, you know, are you, are you are you a believer? I almost want to say because it sounds like a cult. Um, Ray Kurzweil's um, thinking about the singularity. Do you share that? Um, what do you feel is going to happen in twenty years, or is it just going to be the same as as what we've seen in the last twenty years? Um, I'd say I'm not like a big follower of singularity, right? Okay. Um, I mean, what what aspect in twenty years? What like what like that will completely be one or well, yeah, so one is that we, 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 we jump, we have that ability to jump from carbon-based to silicon-based yeah. life form. And the, yeah. the, but the way he describes it sounds, sounds completely ridiculous, right? Mm -hmm. But he's been, if you go into what he's been doing before, and he's been a futurist predicting the next 20 years or 30 years out since yeah. the 70s, and he's been spot on. Like, he, he predicted the internet will take off in 95, took off in 95. He's, he's had many, many success stories. He's rarely been wrong. And what's what's behind this is this there's a there's a natural law it seems um, of the the way technology um, progresses and that has been very stable doesn't matter if there's a war or if there's a major war or COVID or not COVID it, the only thing that changes is the adoption but the the technolo technological pros progress seems to be very stable and what he's basically saying twenty in in that time frame and now he pinpoints it at two thousand thirty eight. There's so many different things that come together, all powered by the same thing, by CPU power, basically. But so many things that come together that we basically can't look beyond that because there is, there's so much new technology that will come online in such a short time frame because it's suddenly so cheap, right? Because CPU is so cheap. And mm -hmm. I, was, I was just thinking about the iPhone in 10 years, you know, just keeping the same progress we had for the last 10 years, it... How, how powerful it will be. I think it's a hundred times as powerful as the current iPhone in, in any aspect. It will cost the same amount of money. Well, I don't know about the inflation or deflation, but it will more or less cost the same amount of money. Yeah. Um, I mean, but in, in terms of what, like the vision that will, like, that will be, let's say, I don't know, what, like half machine, half man? Is that what you're sort of referring to? No, that's a little too much. Okay. <laughs> that, that, I mean, that is 
Or that's a potential outcome, but it's certainly yeah. um, the one that is most scary. But it just in, in, terms of, in terms of medicine, so basically we don't know what each cell is doing in our body because we don't have a measure. We can't measure it. We can't look into it. Um, and we, we can't store that kind of information. But now we with RNA, we, I mean, DNA we have solved and RNA we're getting pretty close to it. Um, now we have to look into proteins. We have to eventually go into every single cell and then know what, what's going on in that cell on a specific protein basis. But and this technology will be available in 10, 15 years. Once we have that, once we can measure it, we can fix it, right? So anything we can measure, we can fix. It will take maybe five years longer. So you can literally change. You can make anyone a 28-year-old 20 by push of a button. Two days later, you're 28 years old, and you have the body of a 28 years old. And there's a... Um, once once you know how it works, you can fix it all, right? The body parts is like a computer. Once you can fix any computer, you just have to put new parts in. And that's extremely exciting, I feel. Yeah, I think it's exciting. But it's sort of interesting to, you know, again, like look at the drivers, like you mentioned, whether it's religion, I brought up determinism, right? And here, I think, I'm not sure if it's uh, Ray, but, you know, maybe some others in the field, you know, I, I think part of their drivers is this like fear of dying, right? You want yeah, to yeah. Yeah. And you want to extend human life, right, to beyond 100 years and 200 years or, you know, some of these people that are in this, you know, whole singularity movement, they, they're basically afraid of death, right, and their own mortality, yeah. right? So that's sort of interesting to sort of think about, right, how uh, these different sort of philosophies, or I would say faith, right, because sometimes it's, it's just as much faith as religion, right, that drives these people towards innovation, Right. So, yeah. Well, there's a, there's a lot of criticism that's leveled against it, right? They call it transhumanism in a, in a bad or a good way, right? So, well, how how do we define ourselves as human if we change basically all the, 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 the basics, the tenets of being human? And yeah. uh, I, I don't have a full answer and it's hard, but I had David Orban on and he, <laughs> I thought he had all the answers. I was, he was basically just waiting for that, 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 nanotube that shoots us off to the stars. I'm like, holy smokes, you're like 300 years ahead in the future. <laughs> he had it all solved, right? He, 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 that was amazing, amazing to listen to. I learned so much and uh, it, was, it made me very optimistic, right? When you have someone who thinks it's all figured out and it's easy, like, you know, this is, I think, how, how user adoption works in society. You have a friend or you have a family member um, who makes it really easy or you watch a YouTube movie and you're like, okay, this is easy. Okay, I'm going to adopt this. It's not hard anymore. <laughs> Um, so I, I was I was convinced to that school. Um, I was I was converted. Um, <laughs> maybe, maybe well, yeah. So maybe like thirty years from now, we'll all be transferred into robot bodies and shipped off to Jupiter, and we'll live forever, and humanity will survive in one form or the or another. As crazy yeah. as this sounds, I think this is, we have a shot at this. It sounds really crazy, but I think in, in 50 years from now, this could actually happen. And it would be cheap, right? It would be the same as going and taking an Uber ride for a couple of bucks. That's right. That's right. <laughs> um, I, I, I would be really excited if that happens. Um, next, uh, next question. I don't know if you're going to love this one either, but it's related to all of this. And I, it's a fascinating topic that can spawn up way more thinking. But do we? Do you think we live in the simulation? You know, there is this theory out there that all this is just a simulation. I, I, I don't know if you've, you've seen the white paper, but it's it's been going into popular culture quite a bit. What's your gut feeling on it? Um, no, I'm not a believer in the matrix. So, yeah, I don't. I, I haven't read the white paper to be honest, so I, I okay. can't comment like in in, in depth. If you want to sort of give me a synopsis, so right, I, no, I'm, I'm very happy to do that. Very happy. 
very happy because I think it's fascinating. So the basic idea is that yeah. um, if if there is someone else out there um, and it's an intelligent um, being in that universe or even outside the universe, um, it, sooner or later, and we know that too, right? We simulate everything. That's kind of the abstract thinking is simulating. But we also put all kinds of things into simulation because we think it's risk-free. Um, to see what actually happens under certain circumstances. It's called experimenting or we, we, we play video games. All of those are basically, an, it's an abstraction of a simulation. And we feel that if we acquire this technological capability and we might be a few hundred years or a few thousand years off, we, um, you know, records well things, we only, that's not really far, that far off. We would build something that resembles a simulation, right? It's a universe where we, we resemble how the universe started, the Big Bang, then now we know how it works, and it was the size of a fingernail, and then expanded, and all of these things happened. What the assumption is, if if we would do it, and we are intelligent beings, I think as someone who is also an intelligent being in that universe, um, somewhere else, or maybe outside the universe, would have had the same thought. Not every single race, but every single civilization, but one of them would sooner or later get to this. And since we are all on this different trajectory and we are billions of years um, or millions of years um, on a different trajectory, depending on when the planet developed, the the, the white paper says, or basically the, the, the way of thinking, not just the white paper, the way of thinking is, well, most likely someone else would have started the simulation um, that could simulate a whole universe or just a part of the universe or just our solar system, whatever the level of fidelity is. <clears throat> so if it's potentially doable, someone must have done it. And then the question is, are we outside or inside the simulation? Because it definitely exists. We'll be interested. Who is, who is the original writer of the white paper? It'd be, if it's like some fantasy person, I would take less credence on it. No, it's, it's a physicist. Like physicist. It's a Danish physicist. Oh, okay, that's name. what I was yeah. going to say, actually. I was going to say, if it's a physicist, that'd be interesting because yeah. then it becomes um, their also worldview and research on the world. Because if you look, there's a fair amount of uh, um, physicists like Freeman, Dyson, and others, right, that theorize from their research is that, you know, it leads them to believe in, you know, a god. There's a, there's a God and there's someone that created order within that. But if you don't believe in a God, then I, I think the natural sort of conclusion is it could be this simulation, right? Because you see the way that the universe is structured and the order that you see from your own research and knowledge. So there's been a fair amount of, I would say, physicists or, or um, certain, you know, certain fields like biochemists that lead into some greater being theory, right? So I think it would be one or the other. So actually, I didn't, I didn't know that the guy was a physicist, but that, that was the, my guess. That's what that was my guess. About. Yeah, yeah. I, it's an interesting, interesting way how you, you look at this. It's basically you're saying it's an atheist's way of describing God, right? Exactly, exactly. I mean, that, 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 that was my guess. And I'm not just yeah. saying it. I, I was going to say, oh, I was wondering when you were explaining it, is this guy a physicist? Whoever wrote it. Yeah, I mean, I, I find that I find that interesting because we we had this amazing amount of of, of this explosion, this cambium ambrosian of of of, of um, new thinking and innovation in the early twentieth century. A lot of this was in Germany, Russia, right? It was, I'd say, that's my personal uh, my personal bias is probably overwhelmingly driven by Jewish and Christian um, scientists uh, that basically all had that idea that um, science gets them closer to God because 
it, it gives them an, a way to like discover how God created the world. And once we figure out these patterns, well, sooner or later, we actually going to talk to God. Well, they're not, it wasn't that simple, right? But there's was a strong motivation, I think, was their religious belief, um, and especially Jewish and Christian. And I think what happened in the last 100 years is that talking about science or religion in the same sentence basically gets you banned, right? You, you're gone from university. So the, 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 it has become extremely atheist and it kind of lost a little bit of its, its, its edge, you could say, not that we didn't have innovation, but I feel like a lot of scientists are very small-minded in their particular field. Maybe they have to, but it's a little, that's not great sometimes to see from the outside. And I think now we see this, this going back that they are recreating a God. Like you just, you just um, assumed, right, that if you don't think there is someone out there looking for us, this father figure, um, you might have to create one. And uh, if you do so, you go through all this, this more difficult um, mind creation and balancing acts to recreate um, a, a demigod. Yeah, I would I would agree. I mean, it's sort of interesting because even some of, I'm trying to remember, the various physicists that I read, they actually were atheists. And then through their research, you know, they became whatever, Jewish or Christian or something, right? Yeah. And so you're right. This is sort of like the new modern day religion. When they go through this exercise and they're researching the, the world, they're just like, oh, it can't be this, you know, um, chaotic mess that created order, right? Yeah. It wasn't sort of, um, you know, that isn't how the universe was created, that there must have been some type of structure, you know, beforehand. Right. So then they say, oh, it must be a simulation. But that makes logical sense to me. You know, if if you're in that field and you're studying the structure and order of the universe, right, and you're deep in it, that's all you think about. I mean, it's either you have no thoughts on it or you go to religion or you go to the simulation theory. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that's yeah. just logical to me. I guess we, we need that as humans, right? We have that instinct. And the instinct is there is someone who is looking out for us. There is this father figure. And we don't really, we, we have trouble, you know, whatever we discover, there's always another layer, which is really, which is, I, I think it will never end, right? So we discover um, atoms and then we go a layer deeper and then we find the individual um, makeups of the, the, the particles. And then we find the subparticle and the subparticle. It seems to never end. And even if we know that we realize, oh man, the universe is basically all dark matter. So someone must have designed this whole thing and it's working so effortlessly as a, as a quantum computer, people say, as a lack of a better word, but this perfect system. And it's, it, I think everyone, and I, I, I read that book, um, Intelligent Creation, which I thought was a fantastic book. Mm -hmm. um, it basically laid out that argument and said, you know, the, the, the probabilities, and that was written by a software developer and uh, scientist it, who's deeply Christian. And he basically says, when you look at the probabilities, and he's he's obviously um, um, devotedly Christian, but if you look at the probabilities, and if you recreate this, even if you have unlimited amounts of time, and it took what four billion years, it's so unlikely that it's just evolution. Obviously, evolution is there, and evolution works, but the creation of new things in extremely complicated matters uh, is less likely evolution. Evolution is definitely choosing things that work, but it has a hard time from from all we know and how we write computer code it doesn't level up to a higher level of complexity. It chooses things, right? It's like a genetic algorithm. And he made that argument. I thought it was really fascinating to, to see him argue that there is someone out there and that I think it makes everyone feel so much better. 
Yeah, actually, I remember having a similar conversation a, a while ago with my one of my physics professors a while ago, or and then um, yeah, I, I don't I don't think he was like religious, right? But then he was like he was like saying, hey, you know, at the start of the universe, like for these sort of atoms to converge and become co even complex sugars, right? That's the most that you've seen come out of this, like when they've done like sort of simulations and stuff, right? But the leap into like a living living life form, it's like that's a lot of like randomness to create something so structured, right? So he's just like, oh, there must be something else. So I just remember having that. I remember him talking about that in class one day. <laughs> it's like, very. Wow. I mean, it's hard. It's a hard argument, but but it's like, oh, we writing computer code by random. No, we don't because it doesn't work. But then AI is basically all randomness, right? It's generating computer code now by randomness, and it's 99% correct. So may maybe randomness is all it takes. Um, I'm, I haven't made up my mind there. Um, but I found that book really, really fascinating. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyways, the simulator world, no, I don't think I'm a believer. But I do understand the logic behind that. So yeah. I like how you classify this, and maybe that's what's going on in, in people's minds. And um, well, maybe that's my, my closing question. Do you feel there is there is a saying that that people say, you know, startups or entrepreneurship, in what we think of is when companies go to Silicon Valley, they take some stolen piece of technology, often it comes from hackers, um, then they raise money on it, and then they do a lot of marketing and shove it in people's faces. This is what we think of startups, but shouldn't we actually think of core innovation? So core innovation that happens in universities, happens with scientists or happens online now, um, irrespective of what, what the titles are. Isn't that actually what drives us forward? I would say both is needed, but I am a big believer in basic research since my graduate school years. Um, my professor at that time was Michael Crow. He was number three at Columbia. He was uh, now he's president of Arizona State University. And so if you look historically at the big leaps in innovation, like you said, uh, whether it's cellular communication, x-rays, et cetera, that was all done by basic research. So I think overall US tech policy, you know, has gone away from that. They've gone to more applied, right? And there's some like, you know, it shifted to some corporates like Microsoft used to do basic research, Google. Um, but I think you need it still um, at the university level and at the corporate level, right? And, and I think it, we've strayed too much from that. There should be increased funding back to basic research across the globe, across the globe, because that's where you, you're right. You do take these leaps in innovation when you're just searching for something, right? Searching for something completely new, sort of this blank slate, right? And that's where you do take these leaps in innovation that really affect and change society. Um, so yeah, obviously I'm a big believer in startup innovation and culture, but I, I think what is lacking right now globally is basic research and we do need, get, we do need to go back to that. How would you pull it off to given that universities seem to have their own as an institution, a lot of people say they, they basically are a failed institution now, now that it seems to be the funding is drawing up, less people, less students go there and get overpriced degrees. And there's a lot of um, 
that the research part of the university is 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 not exactly. I mean, there's certainly shining examples, but it seems like from the outside as an institution of yesteryear or the few decades ago. Um, how would you pull up basic research these days outside of universities if you could do it? Well, one, I think you know, go, going back to the universities, it has to be at the government level, right? Because it, it it's sort of federal grant money that has dried up in, in these areas. Right. So um, it has to shift back to that. But but then again, also, it has to it's hard because like it, it really is like these large corporates that can have the luxury to allocate budgets to basic research. Right. And, you know, a corporate leader or CEO has to have that sort of vision. I mean, if not, then maybe you have to create these. I think there's been some smaller institutions that have been created, but, you know, I don't think their budgets are large enough to really make an impact, right? Maybe there has to be more privately initiated basic research labs. Um, but yeah, I, I don't. I, I haven't done a deep dive in this area, so I, I haven't recently. So I haven't done a. You know, I, I don't know the. You know, the right answer for this. Yeah, one thing I, I thought you would you would mention immediately is kind of like an accelerator program, right? So it's it's a mini grant where you basically get a mini white paper, so to speak, and anyone can apply. And then you you run people through different kind of accelerator challenges, but we're just basic research. It's never going to make money necessarily. I mean, obviously it can be side effect that we you can we can talk about how we we, we access property rights, but it would start from say five hundred dollars or hundred dollars. I don't even know what the minimum is. Maybe there is none, and you you scale that up. And in terms of it may, might be AI based, so you don't have to go through all of those yourself. And then you scale someone up to I don't know a few billion dollars eventually. Um, but it's all crowdsourced. It all comes off the internet. You never meet people necessarily. You just go through certain milestones. That seems to be the future of it. Um, and it shouldn't be in this, you know, the white bearded university. Um, if it's possible, uh, maybe maybe for basic research, it isn't possible to use that accelerator, accelerator model. Yeah, I'm, I, I, I don't think it is just because I think the scale is much larger, right? Yeah. Because you need... You need budgets and and you know it's definitely a long view right so it's not going to be like a one-year or even like a two-year program if you could actually fund it you know it'll take like millions and a long view of like you know i think 10 years out to fund these sort of labs or, or research so yeah. that's why I, I think it does need larger institutions whether it's yeah. you know government or big corps that could do this so yeah the, the large art the large particle collider was with the price tag it was like $20 billion, it wasn't cheap. It, it, exactly. It has to be from a, a larger, you know, institutional standpoint. And, and, and actually really government, right? The governments have to, I think, you know, shift back towards more basic research for, for these leaps of innovation to occur. Yeah. Well, it always seems like this is an area that's extremely bureaucratic and it's it's so boring, nobody wants to be there. It's not very attractive and it attracts kind of the wrong type, not the people who necessarily want to innovate, it, except it attracts the people who just want to have an easy life with bureaucrat money. That's kind of in, in people's minds, I think. And that's why it has been kind of lost out on its appeal on, on public funding. Yeah, I mean, that's also a cultural thing. I mean, again, it depends on the university and the culture that you set up within, you know, the labs of the university or even corporate, um, you know, corporate innovation labs because um, yeah. there's always you know hopefully uh, again I don't know the landscape in detail but hopefully there's sort of good cultures and entities versus bad ones I mean 
I had a friend that ran a <laughs> he ran a lab at the NIH, and he said yeah. it was horrible. He had like hundred people under him. He said maybe ninety of them worked hard. Yeah, that's what you would expect. Why would you, right? If it's if it, the money is coming irrespective of your results, the, like ninety nine percent shouldn't do anything. I don't know if I would. If I get paid the same, if I do something useful or not, you know, that's the end of everything. That's socialism. Yeah. So he just got frustrated because, you know, he was surprised. It's NHI and uh, NIH lab. He thought people would be striving towards doing good, but people just got too comfortable, right? They got yeah. their check. They didn't have any driver, even though he's trying to push them. So he eventually left to go private. Yeah. But he was just very frustrated. Right, so like again, it's setting up the right culture, but it, it is really hard to, um, I guess, motivate people, you know, under certain cultural norms, right? Depending on on the entity. So, well, that's that's kind of my my big saying for a while is that we're hitting the limits on how we can motivate people. And the, the problem was we had this, first we had real religion, so to speak. Um, and it doesn't have to be any specific religion, but it was the, this software upgrade that worked. And then we instituted it in states and nobody even know what religion is, but we all live in a deeply Judeo-Christian state in the US at least. And it was kind of by default, right? We didn't even know what was going on. We only knew it once we went to to um, Islamic state, um, to, to to Muslim state, not, not, to, ISIS, not to ISIS. Um, and then we see the differences of when we go to India, which is built on very different, slightly different values, not necessarily very different values. But I, it was all based on how much can we actually tell people and then they keep their motivation and how do we how do we reinforce this motivation? I think we're hitting this limit now. We, we need to push people harder, but maybe we don't have the monetary incentive because money seems to be less of an issue to people. Maybe that's just me, but in Silicon Valley, money is never the issue, right? It's always something else. But maybe money is the issue. I don't, I don't, I don't have a good gut feeling for it. But I feel this is this is this is the topic of the last ten years to be hitting the limits of how to motivate people because their their basics are covered, so to speak. You know, they have Netflix, they have an unlimited amount of, of movies to watch. They're perfectly entertained. They're dry. They have uh, takeout food that's excellent. What <laughs> else? Do, what else do you want? What else do you want? And this is COVID for me. People are like, oh man, this is all I want. So I stay home, and then I'm just going to exaggerate this COVID thing as much as possible <laughs> because I never have to go anywhere again. Yeah, I, I think this is what happened. And now they're all lazy and they, they, they still, I mean, they're productive, but the motivation is still the biggest issue that we have. And that's a, that's a definitely interesting points. I mean, I would agree with you, you know, to some extent. I mean, there's been this sort of decline of religious influence, even in the U.S., right? And it shifted to even, I would say, things like, you know, politics or Trumpism or, or whatever, where people are trying to sort of find a replacement. Right. Um, not saying that, yeah. you know, they're not if they even didn't have a religion. But I think people na naturally try to find sort of some center in their life. Right. To help ground them in their world. Right. Yeah. And it could be a political figure. Right. Like the crazies of, you know, of the Trump's, you know, Trump supporter or some of the Trump supporters. Right. Or it could be, you know, other causes. Right. You know, left or right. Or it could be other sort of figures in their life. So it's sort of interesting that regardless of like, you know, hundreds of thousands of years of human evolution, right, people still seek sort of purpose and center, right? Yeah, regardless absolutely. Of yeah, so. Yeah, we, 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 I think we have been not doing the, as good a job or maybe because just we have the, the 
that's Jordan Peterson's argument, and he's like the 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 ceiling of human capacity is completely unknown, and we 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 kind of we we go in these phases where we feel like you know two thousand years ago human life was worth nothing, but now it seems to be worth quite a bit. Um, but now we see that like some individuals, Elon Musk is our favorite, obviously right now, is having this 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 outside impact just by being one brain, right? And obviously there's money to it, but in the end he wasn't born rich. Um, so there is this, the, 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 if we all would be like Elon Musk, and that was my earlier question, if we all can be entrepreneurs, there is no limit to our human capacity. But how do we get people there? Because the old school motivations that worked when people were a little less smart and a little less productive, they worked well. But now that they went to this next level, what do we do next? And that's kind of the, the question I'm pondering with. And what's the best model to, to institute this? Got it, got it. Yeah, so it's sort of interesting, right? Because once sort of, basic needs are met, right? And, yeah. you know, poverty and hunger has been decreasing, obviously, over the past 20 years throughout the world. I mean, it'll still be a problem. But if less of the population faces that, and they're able to gain access to education, like we mentioned, online or, or through apps or whatnot, um, there'll be increased human potential, increased human impact. And I agree with you that there'll be increased productivity but there's these, you know, sort of, I would say, temptations on the side road towards increased human productivity, like you mentioned, better food, Netflix, yes. comfortable yes. house, right? We, so, we all look uh, like in the Matrix, man. That's what I'm trying to say. We, we, this, this is our future. That's right. So how do you, yeah, like the Matrix, how do you keep Neo focused on the sidewalk instead of the lady in the red dress? Right. Yeah, I, I, it's hard because ninety percent of the population has no interest in this consciously. I mean, you can you can get them there, but you kind of can't tell them the whole truth. I feel you you kind of you can tell them the truth, but you make it too complicated for most people to care. I don't know what the answer is, but I think it's a small subset of the population who cares, and they see the outsized gains the last ten years. Uh, you know, the one percent. I think it's a little more than one percent, but that certainly that's where this inequality feeling, and it's I think it's real where the inequality comes from. Because in this new new uplift, um, it, it lifts everyone up, but I think it lifts a smaller, a small, relatively small uh, portion of the population up tremendously more. Uh, I, I mean, I, I guess the, I mean, you know, it's always a common answer, but I, I do think it is education, right? It's, I don't think anyone is worse off, right, than 20 years ago. I, very few people can make that argument. But compared to their expectations, I don't know, maybe, but... You know, the, the living standards in terms of what we can afford with the same amount of money, and it seems, you know, we have the, 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 the income didn't really rise broadly, but the, what we can afford, it seems to be pretty enormously nice compared to 20, 30 years ago. Well, not everywhere, but not everyone. Yeah, no, no, but generally, I, I would agree. So I think it really is sort of education early on in terms of whatever. I'm not saying like indoctrinate them, but create this sort of greater sense of purpose, right? Because you, you, you do sort of see it as even, I would say, uh, let's say even like South Korea, like 20 years, 30 years ago, when I used to visit, like in my high school years, you know, it was a less developed economy and even society, right? And so there's this movements of civil society and more nonprofits, which, um, you know, is more mature in, you know, certain European countries and, and the US. But now there's a lot of a fair amount of nonprofit causes and people, you know, striving for the greater good, right? Yeah. And there's also obviously increased ethical standards. I mean, it's still not, I would say, um, on level of the U.S., 
Uh, and I think the same way China, I think they'll develop too, as long as there's you know increased ethical standards, increased purpose, and greater good. So I think you know there'll be greater impact as most nations and societies across the board mature, right? But yeah, then, but mature. I don't. I don't like that word because it's like the like the European view on the world, right? So there's there's, there's a level of GDP, and once you're rich, you can't grow anymore, which I think is, is complete bogus. There is no limit on human capacity, and we could all have hundreds of thousands of times in GDP, and it could be relatively quick. We don't have to wait. Like South Korea, they never accepted that they have to be a poor country, and you yeah. just did what was necessary. And you know, 20 years later, they're 30 years later, they're the richest country on the planet. Yeah, oh, yeah. I'm not talking about economic maturity. Now. I'm talking more like you know, uh, sort of. Uh, cause or, you know, sort of a, what is it? Sort of, a, you know, civil impact. Awareness, yeah, yeah. Yeah, awareness and, and, and beyond like your own immediate family and caring for that. So I, I think you'll, you'll see that. But then again, there's the temptation of the maturity on the economic side. Like you said, the Netflix, the good food, everything. Right, yeah. so that's where somehow this, you know, there has to be increased sort of, you know, education and impact at the early stages too, or, or better models or yeah. examples or something, right? Or it's the opportunities. I feel like we, 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 people don't perceive the opportunities in say, well, you, you, I think you see it very different, but the opportunities in making money and that's easy, easy, but not, you know, because you're scamming someone easy in the sense of it's, it's a fair amount of work you have to put in. And it seems for a lot of people, this this upside hasn't been easier lately. I mean, the downside has been covered in a lot of places. That's that's great, but we haven't seen as many opportunities being generated. I think this is where people are holding back a little. But well, maybe maybe that's six months old and it's already stale knowledge, and it has changed a lot now. Yeah, it's just tough. It's this balance, right? Because it's like you know, there's such there's you know things that even haven't changed about you know the impact of money and greed and on human nature for thousands sure. of years, right? And you still see that within our society, uh, within the US or even, you know, it's prevalent, prevalent in um, more developing countries or emerging markets, right? Yeah, I think it's still, that's baked into us, right? This this culture, and I think there's this, this it is nothing, we, there's nothing we can do relatively short term about that. And, and yeah. sometimes I'm not even sure, but I don't know if you have time for this, but I'm not sure we have to, right? So mm -hmm. I, I always feel like we've been so genetically selected to not be criminals for what, how many generations? Thousands of generations. That's but right. we still have a good amount of criminals everywhere you go. I mean, it's not, you know, Korea has less than the US, but it's, it still has criminals. But yeah. we, we, we shouldn't have them anymore because we have been genetically selecting against them forever. So for me, I feel like all these things that we feel are not ideal, they're, they're maybe not at the right percentage ratio, but they are necessary to keep this civilization to working. So criminals are keeping everyone else honest, right? There is a place for them. Psychopath, there's a place for them. Sociopath, there's a place for them. So whatever people have in genetic makeup that isn't ideal, there is a place for them, even if we don't necessarily know what it is. And, uh, you know, like a Steve Jobs, right? So we, we, we could lament on his character shortcomings, but obviously he found the place and made the world a better place by a huge margin. Yeah, I don't think we should ever expect perfection on human character, right? That there'll yeah. always be the bad actors, regardless of how society progresses or technology advances, right? Because, you know, that's why I think, you know, the good benefit of laws, right? Because I've actually seen that in Korea compared to the US on certain things where 
certain areas where there's less regulation, most people, even the quote unquote good people, will want to cross that line. <laughs> That's why I yeah. think most people I'd say are uh, uh, wimps or they can't hold their own nature. So that's where I saw, you know, traveling to different countries, the benefits of having certain laws and regulation is it does keep people in check, right? Well, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, but you, there's always edge cases that you haven't solved with the laws, right? The laws are very, very abstract, are too far away from the real situation. And yeah. then this regulation obviously depresses entrepreneurship because literally you can't even experiment with anything anymore. Good or bad intentions involved, but it's the outcome that counts, not the intention, right? If the outcome, even bad intentions, the outcome is great. We are all happy. So that's the, the big problem that we, we have this. These laws basically didn't trace them back to, to the, the Roman Empire. We sit on this huge pile of laws that they have depressed entrepreneurship in so many places, unless you know technology changes everything again. But that's when you when we see things taking off, and that's why we haven't seen take off. You know, that's Peter Thiel's um, thesis, obviously, in healthcare or in construction or in so many other places where none, no real productivity gains were made in the last fifty years, which is terrible. I feel. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I've seen that. Definitely, if you're talking about entrepreneurship, it's it's interesting because, um, you know, I think even like several years ago, Time Magazine had, um, you know, cited uh, the U.S.'s generous bankruptcy laws are a big driver of entrepreneurship, and I believe that because when you look at Korea, it's interesting. Even though there's so much startup activity for years until I forgot exactly when recently, um, you know for 30 years or whatever the any ceo of a company can be legally responsible if a company goes under even a startup so that's a yeah. huge disincentive and i i'll use a joke around if that same law was in the us like third of the startups in silicon valley would be gone right yeah, well, if not if not more yeah i mean it trickles down into a mindset not just the personal liability is also a mindset and it's it's very very palpable in Germany where I grew up. You know, they 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 are personally responsible for I don't know forever um, with whatever is in your company. And there's um, even if equity has been put in by the investors, there's still a personal liability. Um, it's it's limited to a certain amount. I forgot what the amount is quarter million dollars. So even if all the equity came from outside investors and it was only equity, there's no loans. You're still responsible for paying every single employee with all your personal assets. And you're wow. like really. Um, so this so grassroots entrepreneurship, yes, you can encapsulate it and like, you know, the cloud is better, but like in that field where you have labor, where you have a certain amount of, of, of capital involved, it's just, you, you guarantee there's no entrepreneurship with these kind of solutions, but they are what the, what the population supports, right? So there is a cultural, um, the, the, the impact of culture is, is, is huge on entrepreneurship, but it can be mediated. So it's not at the end of it all, right? If technology is big enough and pops up, say, in the cloud, where you don't need employees, where you have freelancers, where, where crypto is there, then this changes everything. You don't have to change the laws. Just people move on to the next phase. And uh, I, I don't know if we can, if, if there's, nobody ever pulled up deregulation, right? So we, we have something where an industry just drops out of, um, out of importance and then the laws are scrapped for this. But I think nobody ever, even Trump tried to, to, to deregulate something. It just never happens because there's all these vested interests, so much money. Why would you take the risk to deregulate? Yeah. So, I mean, it's interesting. So I would always say it's like, you know, it's surprising that there, that Korea had such a vibrant, vibrant ecosystem, but they had this restrictive law, which sounds like it was similar to Germany until I think recently they've um, changed it. I, I forgot to what degree. I'd have to ask my colleagues. 
Um, but even I remember even reading in uh, about like Greece. I didn't know that to start a new business, it's something like fifty, sixty thousand dollars, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm like, there's a minimum. Yeah, yeah. The minimum. I'm like, why would you're just like killing your startup culture off the bat, right? Yeah. So some of these countries, they don't think about, you know, a huge driver of economic growth throughout the U.S. and I'm sure even Germany with so many small and mid-sized companies and Korea similar too. I don't think it's like 90% like Germany, but something like 80%. Like it, it started by entrepreneurs, not tech entrepreneurs, but it could be like manufacturing small businesses. And if they stifle it like Greece does, then you're missing out on like so much economic growth. Well, they focus on the downside, right? And they focus on the the people who obviously abuse the system, and that's that's what created these laws. And the population is fine with this. They they don't they they limit the amount of change um, with with these indirectly, right? So you can't directly say we don't want to change much, but you can make laws that prohibit change, and uh, that will work, right? So that's that's obviously a big drama for for Europe uh, is that the next generation, next fifty years of technologies. They don't want anything to do with them. Most of the people there, there's exceptions, right? But in general, as a culture, they'd rather ignore them and live the exact same life they lived the last 50 years. <clears throat> and that's obviously not very helpful <coughs> if you're an entrepreneur because you want to be where, where people really love you and not just where they leave you alone because then you will never have any customers. True, true. Yeah. So I'm, I'm very skeptical in Europe, but you know, there's young people and they might do it differently. but there is this sense of this is the life we want and shall never change. It's perfect, which I think is really unique, is a unique lifestyle. I think only Europe has this, this is so far out in the sunset period of any, any other country in the world. Everyone else wants to develop with more or less flexibility. Yeah, yeah it's interesting. I mean, just a side note, even right before the pandemic, I went to Berlin to speak at this event. And yeah. I, actually, I liked the, there was a lot of entrepreneurs that were very passionate. But the funny thing is, Majority of them were complaining about the ecosystem there and the investors. The investors sounded like uh, like old school investors from like 50 years ago. <laughs> yeah. yeah, all the others are gone. They never made any money and they left. Um, this is, and there weren't that many in the first place, but there were a bunch like 20 years ago, but they're all gone. They, they don't exist anymore. They don't take any risk. Um, so you get like a bank loan or it's 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 just a nightmare and it still is that way um that isn't like germany doesn't have a real venture capital scene it has a bunch you know but uh -huh. it's it's very limited and compared to the size of the economy it's ridiculous no but it's, it's interesting because berlin like there's see there's a fair amount of startups that i met like doing all these like sort of speed dating and friends referring so there's actually, it seems at least perception wise when i went there like a very vibrant entrepreneurial community I don't oh, know yes, how yes. that came about if there wasn't the capital there, right? I think despite the capital, they pulled it off. Yes, uh, they, despite the capital. I mean, it, they always had this alternative, you know, kind of a San Francisco style um, ethos uh, in Berlin, at least in the uh, 90s. And I think that really propelled uh, people who were slightly different to to go there. And it's a, it's a great city to be. I mean, I, I grew up in Berlin. It's, uh -huh. it's, so that's all good, but it never, I, maybe, it, maybe it did take off in the meantime, but I thought... Uh -huh. I felt there was it had way more potential than it could realize because of the funding shortage. But you know, do you? They, they, a lot of them have have U.S. investors and some like um, the Summer Brothers. They literally they make every business they touch a billion dollar business. Yeah, for a while at least. That's right. That's right. So. So I don't know if they're still still around um, with current investments. Anyways, um, that was awesome, Bernard. Thanks for doing this. Um, thanks for taking the time. I, we got into so many topics. So I think we we. we Raise so many questions.
Yeah, that was fun. That was fun. You actually took me to pass where I never thought of it either. <laughs> so it's good. <laughs> next, next time we, we have to provide more answers, right? We have to, we have to prepare better. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Thanks for doing this. It was awesome. Okay, great. Thanks, man. Okay, have a good day. Right, thanks, man. Talk soon. Bye, George.